From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that truly matters. The island nation of Haiti has long been the recipient of international aid, receiving billions of dollars in foreign assistance, much of it from the United States. Yet Haiti persists as one of the world's poorest countries, with the continuing identification as a fragile state. Intractable poverty in the face of ongoing aid would seem to make Haiti a global development riddle. Today, we're talking about Haiti and the mystery of why aid dollars sometimes add up to less than the sum of their parts. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Scott Freeman. Scott is a professor in the School of International Service. He's an environmental anthropologist who works in both Haiti and the Dominican Republic, looking closely at the bureaucracies of international aid projects. In Haiti, his research has covered the Vetiver perfume industry and soil conservation reforestation efforts, both of which we'll discuss today. Scott, thanks for joining Big World. Thanks for inviting me. So, Scott, we're going to start our conversation looking at aid in Haiti writ large and then delve a bit into specific areas. Organizations and headlines often refer to Haiti as the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. But what do we need to know about the economic history of the country to understand the why and how of Haiti today? Right. And I think, you know, part of that poorest country in the Western Hemisphere narrative is that this narrative captures almost the entirety of the imagination that some people have of what Haiti is. And I think it distracts from how we should think about the problem, right? So it makes us think of Haiti as this entity in and of itself, rather than thinking about Haiti as a place um, in which colonial powers like the United States and France have really played a profound role in economic extraction and sort of colonialism. Thinking about sort of the current economic and political condition in Haiti, that's a really important question to ask, is what use has Haiti played for these other powers? And, th and that sort of allows us then to think about uh, the economic condition that, that Haiti's in and, and gets us away from thinking that, that uh, this is simply because of some sort of internal um, strife and dynamic that is, that is unique to, to Haiti. Right, right. We, we are going to talk a little bit about aid, uh, and I, and I want to get back to what you were saying about those foreign powers, but with in looking at aid specifically, there have been a number of high-profile news stories about failed aid initiatives in Haiti. Millions of missing dollars pledged to aid repair to, to controversy over financial transparency. There have been some uh, controversies with high-profile celebrity foundations like the Clinton Foundation and Wyclef John's um, Yale Haiti. Why do aid projects in Haiti seemingly often fail? And is asking why aid projects fail even the right question yeah. to ask? Yeah, right. So there's been high-profile uh, failure of big projects, big-name donors, and that sort of thing, right? And that is a separate yet related question to why for the past now like 65 years has ongoing aid in Haiti happened without a result, right? So there's there's two things that are going on. One is capturing the headlines um, and, and the Red Cross, of course, captured a big um, expose and even uh, congressional inquiry into its activities. And um, at the same time, you have a lot of other aid activities that don't make headlines Yet, of course, right, the, 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 the benefits are questionable. On the one hand, with these, these um, you know, some of the um, assertions about the failures of 
uh, large foreign interventions is that they have been serving foreign interests far more than they're concerned in serving Haitians. That is to say, uh, the aid may be employing foreign aid workers rather than Haitian nationals who don't understand the context, and furthermore, maybe supporting sort of foreign business interests um, as opposed to uh, the interests of um, sort of the everyday Haitian. Mm -hmm. So how is it that many, if you look at documentation, how is it that you look at many aid projects that label themselves successful don't actually have sort of these impacts on the ground? Um, and I think that a lot of that has to do with how aid projects are, are measured, right? The short-term measurement of success and looking for something visible and measurable um, in order to uh, stamp a project as successful. And as time goes on and projects are evaluated on those short-term frameworks, I think that you have this phenomena where projects are deemed successful without providing substantive mm -hmm. benefits on the ground. Basically, they fulfill the terms of the grant, whatever those limited terms were, they did the deliverables success. Exactly. But it didn't actually impact anybody's life in a positive way long term. Exactly. And, the, and then there's sort of a, a slow drip, right? There are mm -hmm. slow violence as opposed to this headline grabbing large violence of, wait a second, fund donors uh, dollars weren't used accordingly. There's a sort of slower um, creep of this type of project that is sort of constantly going on in the background. And mm -hmm. I think that's also what we need to pay attention mm -hmm. to. It's like a bureaucratic breakdown. Exactly. Right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So going back to your point about colonialism, and a, a big part of the history in the whole Western Hemisphere is colonialism. And this is definitely true of Haiti. It was colonized by the Spanish and the French. It was occupied by the U.S. As you alluded to earlier, are there aspects of Haiti's colonial past that are still impacting current aid practices? Are there things to do with the colonial past that, whether it's by France or Spain and the U.S. that are still impacted by having been a colonial or an occupying power there? Totally. I think if you look at a lot of the dynamics of who controls decisions about aid, mm -hmm. there's this mirror there. Right? And so um, actually some of the, the critiques of the earthquake response were that um, planning meetings right after the earthquake that were between sort of foreign institutions and the Haitian government were all conducted in English. So how were Haitian uh, government officials going to participate in any way if right. the language was sort of in a certain way, sort of a colonial one, right? The, the, right. the language of power was not the one that, that language was that, that many Haitians are speaking. And so I think that um, it's, it's that decision-making power. And the question is sort of who ends up governing Haiti if aid institutions have uh, a majority of the funds that are uh, reaching Haitians' lives in the countryside, then uh, their decisions, the decisions of aid workers, right? may have a greater impact in everyday experience of governing and governance uh, than the individuals who have been voted into office. And so I think there's a really interesting and unfortunate way in which uh, there is this governing from uh, experts and mm -hmm. from the aid industry uh, that sort of supplants um, civic participation. In. It's so interesting that you use the phrase aid industry. I think yeah. we probably should get into that a little bit because yeah. that's that's interesting but first just for anybody who doesn't know um, the language of Haiti is Haitian Creole yes right. okay yeah. so not English it's a, a it's a language that's more closely related to French but is different from French right right okay. sort of think French uh, uh, the influence of French vocabulary on uh, language structures um, brought from enslaved peoples who came over from Africa okay yeah. interesting 
All right. So, Scott, let's get a little bit into uh, talking about existing natural resources. You are an environmentalist as Mm -hmm. well. What is commodity dumping? Tell us a little bit about that and how does it play out in Haiti? And more importantly, maybe, who does this practice harm? So what is commodity dumping? Right. And commodity dumping is a term of sort of critique, right? Mm -hmm. This is not sort of, you would not find this in a proposal for uh, U.S. foreign policy, right? This <laughs> that is, we're going to do commodity right, dumping. Exactly, right, exactly. Right, right. We it's don't want to do yep. these sorts of things. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's uh, a way in which we think about the movement of something that might be considered even food aid. Uh, and this, for for Haiti um, particularly, is uh, of question in terms of rice and, and uh, more recently peanuts. And the idea is that subsidized food stuff from the United States, surplus subsidized food from the United States um, that needs to sort of be disposed of mm-hmm. or, or find some market somewhere, can't find a market in the United States because we've incentivized overproduction. And so then that amount of food needs to find a market somewhere else. And so using foreign policy, we find a space in which that commodity can be um, sold. And because mm-hmm. it's subsidized for uh, the farmers in the United States, that commodity can be sold at... Very cheaply. Yeah. Okay. And so thinking about that in, in Haiti and for Haitians, right, uh, uh, the famous cases of, of rice, which um, in the 1990s, the tariff uh, uh, for Haitian rice went from uh, 50%, uh, the tariff that protected rice entering into Haiti in down to um, 3%. And so uh, that was at the behest of, of Bill Clinton, who has since apologized for this move. But it meant that uh, U.S. rice uh, entered into Haiti, which has its own food production, its own agricultural food production, both rice and other um, staple food crops. And uh, so that really affects the lives of Haitian farmers. So one of the impacts of lowering the forced lowering of tariffs was the influx of foreign rice. And if you talk to, uh, and this had like really profound effects, effects that I still think are, are um, not well understood or talked about, which is that this changed the diet of, of, of Haitians. So the domestic rice industry did not completely crumble. There's still a rice industry in, in, in Haiti. It could be stronger. But what happened was the import of U.S. rice actually changed what Haitians eat. So if you talk to someone who is in their 50s or their 60s about what they ate on a, on a weekly basis, they had a whole number of things, right? Um, uh, tubers and uh, bananas, uh, plantains and uh, yam and manioc and all this. And on Sunday, they ate rice. And rice was a sort of special dish on Sunday on on uh, days of celebration but it was not consumed every day now rice is consumed every day it is the staple of people's diets and so there's a really interesting way that this has uh, remade sort of in large part uh, Haitian diet simply because it has become a cheaper um, and more readily available commodity so when I go down to Haiti I eat rice produced in the United States because that's what's available. And that's another example of that kind of that colonial or occupying past where our own interests are more important and being exerted over right. a sovereign nation 
Right, and 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 with but under a language of no, right. we're doing good, right. we're doing aid, right, right, we're right. donating here, but but uh, the interests are actually really far more tied to right. domestic farmers. Scott Freeman, it's time in the podcast when we take five. We get to step back from the problems and challenges and daydream out loud. If you could right now single-handedly institute five policies or practices that would change the world for the better, what would they be? And specifically in your case, what are five things you would change about international development practices? All right. (laughs) Remake the world. Go for it. (laughs) I feel very comfortable with that. I don't. So I think a couple of, of things that I would rethink are this form of the project and the aid project. This um, administrative form of the project, a financial and time-bound form, is sort of the currency of the aid industry. Mm-hmm. NGOs apply to get projects. They report in, in sort of by project reports, and donors want sort of follow-up on their projects. Mm-hmm. And so this is not just a way of designing aid. It's a way of measuring aid, mm-hmm. and it's a way of NGOs getting funding. Mm -hmm. And that has a large number of effects on what happens on the ground. One of which, as we discussed, is the measurements are not long-term, they're short-term, they're tied to accounting for donors' funding. Mm -hmm. And so that's the second point, is that you, I think you have to change the accountability structures, because what's happening is, in this world in which the project is the dominant form of aid, the accounting is up to donors' funds. And so when we account for what aid does, we account for those donor dollars in order to appease the donors who have who've provided funding mm-hmm. and not necessarily, not necessarily to those who are receiving the benefits, supposedly re- the benefits of aid. I think the third is for the aid industry and more broadly, all of us to think about the impact of the global economy on um, poverty. So in, in many ways, historically, it's often in some part the result of economic, um, sort of extractive economic practices mm-hmm. that we have the conditions of poverty in general. And so, um, uh, for example, the export of, of uh, U.S. commodities um, and pushing those on um, other countries mm-hmm. is a large part of the problem and not necessarily the solution. So I think we really need to take a step back um, and recognize that global the global economy is not benefiting everyone mm-hmm. equally and look at what's going on in terms of creating poverty. I think the fourth would be to move citizens to engage more with U.S. policy, foreign policy, rather to simply be complacent about uh, sort of donating to charity. And I'm not saying that people are complacent and, or doing a good job in donating to charity, but what I'm uh, sort of pushing at is that a number of the issues that I see in Haiti are caused because of U.S.'s foreign policy mm-hmm. towards garment production in Haiti, towards food production in the United States as opposed to Haiti. And that is the source of this poverty, which we then solve supposedly with the aid industry. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the wheels just keep spinning rather than looking back to the cause of this, engaging with U.S. foreign policy and critiquing the way that uh, we create conditions, these conditions abroad, I think would be far more productive. Um, and so finally is to constantly make space for uh, social movements and activists abroad rather than continually reify the experts from the United States and, and the West more broadly. Great. Thank you. 
So Scott, let's let's pull back a bit more broadly to look at impacts of the economy on the environment. What are some of the observable ways economic inequality impacts environmental degradation on the island? You know, one of the things that I'm most attuned to is the way that uh, farmers work their land. And if we think about the larger food market, right? So if you think about the fact that um, still a great deal of individuals in Haiti are looking to the land to produce as, as their source of capital, right? That this produces their income. And therefore, there's a real demand on that land, right? To produce something for a family mm-hmm. in a larger context in which you're competing with subsidized uh, food coming from uh, the United States, but also being imported from uh, the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. The amount that you can sell your food for is low, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's challenging to produce off of a small plot of land. And a so, living wage. Right. right. And so it really uh, asks farmers to sort of demand a lot from their land. And so what I see is sort of um, soil erosion and soil exhaustion as a result of, of these sorts of practices, or at least that high demand has, has a cost, right? Mm-hmm. And so in the area in which I work, uh, there is a lot of, of deforested area, and that's mostly for grazing land and for agricultural land. There is a larger and, and uh, sort of a bigger narrative that Haiti sort of has this uh, deleterious um, forest destruction. And while there has been del- uh, forest destruction in, in Haiti, uh, some of the statistics are a little more bombastic than mm-hmm. than they need to be. What what we see in terms of environmental stress from from farmers is is trying to make a living in a really precarious economic environment. Mm-hmm. So it puts them in a situation where they have really no choice but to do harm to their land in order to try and wring yeah, as much to out over, of it as right, they can. to overstress yeah. that 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 land. So I want to get into one crop in particular. First, you've written about how the suppression of knowledge can accompany and facilitate the extraction of materials for global consumption. And I know that you have a particular interest in one crop in particular, vetiver. Can you give us a short primer on vetiver? Because I'm guessing that a lot of people have no idea what this is. I didn't until I met you. What is it? Yeah, so it's this really... uh, Wonderful smelling uh, essential oil, right? I, I think I've worked around it too long. I'm super excited about it. Um, you didn't uh, bring any, I right? I didn't bring any. It's all in my office. Um, my office smells great. Um, it's um, it comes from the vetiver plant, so mm-hmm. it looks like a, it's a grass, right? Right. Um, it has really deep roots, um, so, and the roots grow vertically, so it goes really deep down. And uh, when you distill the vetiver roots, you get this essential oil and this essential oil is really valuable to the perfume industry and it turns out that haiti produces the most vetiver oil in the world and the highest quality Mm -hmm. so haiti is known as the place where if you want vetiver oil you go um really to to haiti and so um and so there was uh some research that i did looking at the environmental and economic impacts of the vetiver industry so you hear that and you think well, this is great. We have this really prized commodity. It grows in one place better than others. It goes into luxury items like perfume. I'm sure they're making a lot of yeah. money off of this. This must be great for Haiti. How's it helping? Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. And there we are. Uh, 
Right, and, and a friend, uh, uh, Kieran Jerome, and I have thought of this as this sort of repeating series of ideas about savior commodities. That, mm-hmm. that, that here it is. Here's the next one that will save Hades, right? Mm-hmm. It's coffee. It's sugar. It's, it's vetiver. What I think is really notable about this crop is when I talked to vetiver farmers in um, 2011, so a number of years ago now, I came across this phenomena that a number of them uh, told me that vetiver oil makes planes fly, which it does not make planes mm-hmm. fly. And so it raised the question, how is this possible that mm-hmm. you know, vetiver farmers who are farming vetiver oil to sell to the oil uh, industry and the perfume industry, why is it that they, that they think this? Or how is that possible? Right. This, right? right. And, so, and so ultimately, it's a really hard question to answer. But I think what it indicates about the industry is the sort of closed doors and the extractive natures. And all of these things are very heavily guarded, all these ideas and, and, and I suppose, secrets. Uh, and even, you know, the costs that intermediaries are paying is often unknown to farmers. Right. And there's no way that they could be kept in the dark that much unless it's in someone's economic best interest for them to not know what they're doing. So who is benefiting from kind of purposefully keeping these farmers in the dark? Who, who, who's benefiting? I think that the um, chemical makeups of, of, of essential oils are still largely not even in the reaches of the oil distillers who okay. often don't know that sort of quality of oil that they're producing. And so everybody's sort of almost coming uh, through this, this perfume industry. It seems that there's this interest in guarding the secrets and the recipes and these sorts of things. Oh, my gosh. Scott, to wrap us up here, let's pull way back to look at a, a bigger picture. We know that climate change impacts will be felt most by those who already have the least. I think that's kind of widely understood among environmentalists. We're also seeing the real economic costs in terms of relief and rebuilding after damaging storms and fires in the U.S. As these costs just continue to escalate and governments, not just the U.S., many governments will be paying more to, to rebuild their own infrastructure after damaging natural events. So as the U.S. spends less on international aid, because this is also happening under the current administration, and costs from a changing climate begin to accrue, I'm wondering kind of two things. First of all, what does that do to the aid industry that you referenced earlier of this whole kind of industry of dispersing funds and the bureaucracy that sustains itself that way? And and more importantly, where does this leave Haiti? The way in which changing climate has affected Haiti is, or at least the, the farmers that I work with, is drought and hurricanes. Mm-hmm. So people's crops are being affected in people's houses and, and their livelihoods are being affected because uh, their productive capital in terms of their land and their possessions are swept away by hurricanes. Um, and their crops are decimated by increased droughts or sort of you know, uh, uh, weather events. And so the response to those by as you said, as I said, the aid <laughs> industry, is rebuilding of houses, mm-hmm. right? My concern there is that it is not a substantively different type of housing that is more robust mm-hmm. and stands up to hurricanes. Mm-hmm. And in terms of agriculture, Haitian farmers have always had more than one source of income. And so 
what I think is on the tips of folks' tongues is disaster risk reduction and and sort of equipping people to be, this buzz term is resilient in the face of all of these issues. The strategies that, that, that Haitian farmers have had to have for a very long time are to to already have those skills, to already be able to manage a precarious, I keep using this term again and again, a precariously perched economic situation. I suppose I will um, wait and see, but am, am sort of curious about the degree to which this is substantively different mm-hmm. from what has been going on in mm-hmm. Haiti. That I think that there has been so, there have been so many remakes of the face of aid in Haiti that have yet continued mm-hmm. uh, the similar sort of power dynamics and policies just in a slightly different terminology, just in a slightly different focus that I will sort of wait and see, but I am uh, concerned and as, as always about the way in which it may just be sort of business as usual. Mm. Okay. Scott Freeman, thank you for joining Big World and discussing Haiti. There's, there's no easy answers here, but it was really informative discussion. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks very much for having me. It was great. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time. Thank you.